Well, this is it. This is the last sermon in the series. Don't miss this. As we've gone through the Gospel of John, it has taken us about nine months. Uh, We started early January, and today is the last day. Starting next week, we'll be uh, going through sort of a smaller series on our core values. We try to revisit these from time to time, and that will take us into uh, some sort of Christmas series that I'm still working on. Nine months in the Gospel of John. I got to be honest, uh, there were many times I wish we could have spent much, much more time. You may not have felt that way, but, but I did. I try to be sensitive to that. Uh, sometimes I felt like we were just flying through really important things. But the wonderful things of, uh, about the book or the books here in the Bible is that you get to pick this up anytime you want. You get to read it, you get to pour over it, you get to spend time in it, sit with others and discuss uh, the wonderful Word of God. So I hope that you take advantage to do that. I called this series Don't Miss This because as I studied through the Gospel of John before this series, I, I just kept feeling like here's this elderly apostle toward the end of his life. He knows the things have been said about Jesus, the wonderful truths that the other gospel writers have written, and and yet there's this passion in his heart to write something down to say, there are things I saw, and I don't want people to miss this. And there's an important truth about Jesus Christ. The others talked about it absolutely, but it's like his heart just can't contain itself any longer. I want to make sure people hear my testimony, my story. And it wasn't the first time. He had spent his life traveling all over, teaching and preaching these things, discipling, evangelizing other people and other leaders. But here he writes it down, and I'm so glad he did, because I hear that passion as I read these words, and we see the gospel writer John just crying out, don't miss this. There's a fear in our society known as the fear of missing out, FOMO. Have you ever heard of this? I don't know if it's a real thing. I mean, people say it's a real thing. That makes it a real thing. So, But it's this idea that there might be something going on, maybe even right now, that I'm missing out on. And there's, there's sort of an underlying idea with that, which is it might be better than what I'm doing right now. If you have a phone, especially a smartphone, really the other ones probably don't work for this, and you've ever been anywhere and just thought, I'm just going to pull it out and check it real quick. Just, just going to look at it. That's fear of missing out. There might be, there might be a text message, might be a phone call, might be a sports update, weather update, uh, a sale going on. There might be something somewhere that I need to know about and I'm missing it. Modern day technology, social media is just fueling and pouring, pouring fuel on the fire of this fear of missing out. We have constantly, literally right at our fingertips with our computers, our tablets, our phones, just an ongoing source of information that is constantly saying, don't miss this. You might not see this. This is really good. Have you ever been at a restaurant and you see a family, maybe a couple or a whole family, and they're all sitting there with their devices out? Lovely family gathering dinner together. Any one of them could get up and walk away from the table and nobody else would notice because they got something else going on. Now, I am not, please hear me, I'm not anti-technology. I love technology. 
All right, not like I love Jesus or my family, but I like technology. So I'm not here to, to rip on technology, but we need to understand as we interact in this world the pressures that it puts on us and the way it changes our thinking. The more we are enticed with, there might be something else going on, the more distracted we live. And, and I believe we are now in an age that there is constant, and for some people, total distraction at all times. And the irony is, in this fear of missing out, that when we live with a fear of missing out on something, we guarantee we are missing out on something. Because the guarantee is, you're missing out on whatever is going on right there where you are. You're missing it. Parents are missing out what their kids are doing because they're too busy on their phones. Kids are missing out on what their parents are doing because they're too busy on their tablets. We are missing out on sometimes what God is doing right there with us because we're so busy trying to catch up on other things that we might be missing out on. I don't believe this is a new phenomenon at all. I think all the way back from the beginning of time, we can see a fear of missing out. If you look at Eve in the Garden of Eden, she had a fear of missing out. Satan comes to her and raises a question about God's goodness. There's something God's holding back from you, Eve. Oh, what about that tree in the middle of the garden? Oh, I'm missing out on that. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Do you see the fear of missing out there? There's, there's some good food I'm not eating. There's something beautiful I want to see more of. There's some knowledge I don't have that I want to get. I'm missing out and I want to get it. What did they miss out on after they ate the fruit? They had a perfect relationship with God. They had all of their needs that anything they could possibly need was provided for them by God in the garden. And yet because of their fear of missing out, they ended up missing out on this perfect relationship with God and instead lived with a broken relationship for the rest of their life. In fact, putting all of humanity in the position of living with a broken relationship with God. And they had to leave the garden. Instead of having all their needs provided by God, now it is work and toil and sweat and tears and sin and brokenness. Fear of missing out is nothing new. And so I imagine John, after many, many years of ministry, sitting down to write this gospel, this good news, this letter, to be distributed all over. And I wonder if somewhere in his mind he had any inkling that people like us would be sitting one day reading these words that he wrote. And as he writes... I imagine he thought about his ministry. All the times he told people about Jesus Christ. All the times he shared the stories of what he had seen, what he had experienced in the presence of Jesus. All the while in these conversations thinking, don't, don't miss it. And you know what? They were probably busy with their day-to-day life too. They might not have had the internet, but they had the town marketplace. 
There were other religions. There were other things pulling on their attention to just do this, it'll make you feel better. Just worship this god or goddess or, or the Roman emperor, this will make everything go better. You'll make more money, everything will go better. And he's thinking, no, don't miss who Jesus is. Today, in the sermon, we're going to look at just the last two verses of this book. But we're going to use it to fly through the whole book, summarize, kind of wrap up and conclude. So turn with me to John chapter 21 as we look at verses 24 and 25. At the end of his gospel, John writes this. This is the disciple who testifies to these things. And who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. He says, this is my testimony. I'm writing it down for you. This is what I witnessed. And he says, these things are true. These things about Jesus are true. And then he says, I could go on and on. There's so much more to be learned about Jesus Christ that these words, these pages cannot possibly contain it. And he wants people to know the greatness of Jesus. So look at, let's look at the testimony of John. Why did John write this gospel? Turn with me again to chapter 20. We've looked at this so many times throughout the book. It is John's statement of exactly the answer to that question. Why did he write this book? John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these, saying this what I've written down, my testimony, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He says, don't miss this. You can believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and that is where you, and that is how you can have life. And that is something that I hope we would say, I don't want to miss that. I don't want to miss life in Jesus. Think about some of the things that John saw as he walked with Jesus over three years or so of his ministry. Think about him following this teacher, John the Baptist. And one day, this teacher that he followed, his rabbi, John the Baptist, says, look, there's the Messiah. And John, the gospel writer, switches teachers. And he follows Jesus. And what does he see along the way? He sees Jesus change water to wine. He sees Jesus multiply food to feed a crowd. Food that was just meant for a small boy's lunch now feeds over 5,000 people. That's what John sees. Think about the miracles, the other miracles. Think about the way Jesus loved people and treated them with dignity. In John chapter 3, Jesus speaks with Nicodemus. One of these religious leaders that was so often out to get Jesus as a group And yet Nicodemus has some curiosity. He wants to know some things. And if you read, and I hope you do, read John chapter 3 and just watch the way Jesus interacts with him. He's firm about truth, but he treats Nicodemus with dignity and respect. 
A great parallel to this is the very next chapter, Jesus meets with a Samaritan woman, an outcast from her town, a wicked sinner. And one of these people had a reputation. Everybody knew this woman. She couldn't even go out to a well when other people were there. She was so embarrassed. And yet, how does Jesus treat her? He doesn't pull punches. He addresses her sin, but he does it lovingly, with dignity and respect. My wife prayed about the the shooting in Pittsburgh. Again, I, I am just heartbroken for our culture. That we have seemed to come to a point And and if I may be so bold, it is Christian and unchristian alike, where if we disagree with somebody, we must therefore hate them. And then the flip side is, well, if I'm not to hate them, I must automatically agree with them. Both of those statements are absolutely categorically false. We need to learn to disagree with love and respect. And Christians, we must lead the charge on this. It is good to say that is wrong. It is against the law of God. It is sinful. It is good to stand up for those things. But it can be done in a loving way that treats a person with dignity and respect. And Jesus is such a beautiful example of this. Read the book of John with a question in your mind. Just go back and read it, page after page. I don't know if there's covers. Cover to cover. Read the whole gospel. And read it with this question in mind. How does Jesus treat other people? How does Jesus treat other people? John is amazing in that respect. Think of the miraculous healings that John witnessed. He sees an official son in John chapter 4 get healed. Jesus doesn't even need to go. It's a long distance healing. Jesus says, go, your son's healed. Jesus sees, or John sees Jesus make a lame man walk in John chapter 5. He sees in John 9, a man that was born from birth. No. Born blind from birth. You know when you say something, you go, I don't think that's quite right. It was really profound. How many of you have been born from birth? Yeah, me too. Amen. He sees a man that's born blind. Now, I'm no physician, but if you're born blind, something's pretty broken. What does it take to miraculously heal that? That's not just, oh, oh, just a little speck in your eye, I'll get that out. That's a recreation miracle. To make whatever was not there or was broken to be present or fixed. Nobody had ever heard about a miracle like that. And and my second favorite miracle in all of the gospel is John chapter 11. Lazarus comes back to life. I say second because we're about to talk about my first. Think about witnessing these things. Think about walking with Jesus. and, And just day after day being amazed. You can do that? Man, I want to tell other people about this. I've got a story to share, a testimony. People need to hear these things. Think about the things he heard Jesus say. He's talking, Jesus, to the religious leaders, and they're talking about the temple, which was, at this time, the temple of Herod was a massive structure, beautiful structure. It took decades to build. 
And Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it again. What? Huh? And later on they realize he wasn't talking about that temple. That temple is about the presence of God. And the presence of God was right there. Jesus is talking about Jesus. He says, you kill me. Three days I'm coming right back. Think about the other statements he makes. John hears Jesus say, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Man, in a day when people were, were just each and every day struggling for food and drink, and Jesus comes out and says this. He says in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What a claim to make. John chapter 10, verse 7, he calls himself the gate of the sheep. And then in verse 9, he says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be, what? Saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Jesus says, later on in that same chapter, I am the good shepherd. It says, not only am I the way for the sheep, but I'm the guy taking the sheep where they need to go. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one who watches out for the, the sheep. I am the one who will lay down my life. And that's exactly what he did. Think about John hearing these things. Could you keep it to yourself? John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, you have to read this in a Jewish context. God's going to do something miraculous. This was the Jewish upbringing. Someday Messiah is going to come. Someday God's going to make all things right. And Jesus stands up and says, I'm the resurrection and the life. What a claim. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Jesus did not say, I am a way, a truth, and a life. The way. The only way. And, and that's why for John, he's, he's trying to say, don't miss this. Jesus is not just one among many ways. He is the way. The truth. The life. John lived in a world not unlike us. Just a, a, a smorgasbord of ways that you can make yourself happy and maybe save your soul. Pick whatever religion you want. Just a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little dabble over here. Just mush them all together. The Greek world was not that different from our world today. John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine. and My father is the gardener. He says, I am the connection between you and God. I am the one that will, will pull the life and pour it into your heart and into your life. I am the true vine. Not to mention that at least five times in this gospel, Jesus uses the phrase that we've talked about, ego a me, I am. Oh yeah, I am. And it's so easy in casual conversation to throw that in, but it's so obvious in the book of John that Jesus is making a point. They would have grown up, many of them, hearing, reading the Greek Old Testament. And when Jesus says to Moses, after Moses says, what shall I call you? And he says, I am. Do you know what the Greek Old Testament would have said? Ego, emi. I am. And Jesus says, that's me. John has seen these things. He's heard these things. 
but all of it take on a new significance with what would become the center point of his testimony. In John chapter 19, he sees Jesus nailed to a Roman cross. He sees the one that made these bold statements, the one that he had followed, suffer brutally. And it seems like it all comes crashing down. I could imagine a different testimony of John. I followed this guy. He died on a cross. It was all for nothing. That's not the testimony we have. Because in John chapter 20, verse 8, after Jesus dies on the cross on Friday, on Sunday morning, John runs to the tomb where Jesus is buried, and he finds it empty. And John writes about himself in verse 8, Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first went inside also. He saw and believed. And that's John's testimony. I believe. I was there. The tomb is empty. Our Savior is risen. And later that evening, John is gathered with a group of scared disciples in a locked room. And suddenly, there's Jesus. Jesus shows up and says, Peace be with you. This is why John testifies. Because he has seen, he has heard, he has experienced something so amazing. And he wants others to know about Jesus as well. You know, we have work days here at the church to work on the renovation. It's been a wonderful time. Just a real dedicated group of people that show up week after week, day after day, and then others that come in and out when they can. Just a wonderful time. But we have some great discussions, some of them really deep and meaningful, others not so much. But guys come in with, with things on their heart and their mind. Hey, did you see the baseball game? Hey, you watching the World Series? Hey, look at my fish. I mean, whatever it is. We see things. And, and you can tell what people are passionate about because they want to share it with you. That's what John's doing. Let's not overcomplicate it here. The guy witnessed, experienced something amazing, and he wants to give testimony. His life has been changed by Jesus, and he wants us to know about it. Honestly, I don't think John could have helped himself. I think John was just bursting at the seams to tell people about Jesus. Wouldn't you, if you had seen and heard the things that he did? What about us? We, too have a testimony. We also must bear witness. We have seen things that God has done in our lives, in the lives of those we know, in our churches, in our world, in our culture. We have a story to tell. And we need to quit being afraid. And we need to start telling the story. And say, guys, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you what I learned in church. Let me tell you what I read in my Bible. I'm so excited because this morning I got up and I read and I just want to share this with you. We'd have no problem walking into work and going, man, did you see that Bills game on Sunday? What a disappointment. We'd have no problem doing that. I'm not talking about anything, just hypothetically. 
And I wonder if instead of being afraid of how people will treat us, if we would instead be more concerned about them missing out on Jesus Christ, if that would change how we share our testimony and our story about what Jesus has done in our life. I picture John writing this gospel thinking they need to know. I picture him traveling from city to city or or maybe settling down in Ephesus and pastoring the church there and just thinking, man, I hope they're getting it. They need to believe. I pray they don't miss who Jesus is, how much he loves them, what he's done to save them, what he can do to restore them to a right relationship with God. And I wonder, do we feel and think the same way? John testifies. He says, this is what I saw. This is what I experienced. But it's not just stories. It's not just opinion. What he is sharing is the truth about who Jesus is. And he says that in chapter 21, verse 24. Testifies to these things. Wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Think about the bold claims that he has made about Jesus Christ. And the claims that Jesus makes about himself. If we go to John chapter 1, which we looked at early on in the series, obviously. Think about the way John introduces Jesus. Right away, you know this is a different sort of gospel. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. John doesn't start with a Christmas story. He starts with theology. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Or with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Man, what a great way to start a testimony. And then the rest of the book is Him going, let me tell you about that guy. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh. That Word, that eternal, powerful Word that was with God, that is God, took on flesh, made His dwelling, He pitched His tent, He tabernacled among us. We have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And every time John tells somebody about Jesus, that idea is in his head. I'm just sharing His glory. I want them to see Jesus. This is the truth John emphasizes throughout this book. Jesus is God. That's a foundational truth of Christianity. Jesus is God. If you take that out of our religion, you have nothing left. He is the Word of God, the power of God, and the presence of God. He is also throughout the book, the promised Messiah. The one promised by God long ago to come and make things right. And in this gospel, just like the others, he is our crucified and risen Savior. The one who died in our place and rose again. The Lamb of God, as John the Baptist would say in chapter 1, verse 29. If John were here today, I believe passionately he would say to us, probably with tears in his eyes, don't miss who Jesus is. Don't settle for a warped picture of Jesus that might seem more comfortable 
Don't miss who Jesus truly is. The truth about Jesus changed everything for John. It's why he wrote this book. It's why he traveled. It's why he ministered. It's why eventually he was exiled to a rocky little island called Patmos by the Roman Empire where they would send their prisoners to live in harsh conditions. But John knew that there was more going on than just the struggles of this life. And his life wasn't defined by just what was going on at that moment. His life was defined by the truth of Jesus Christ. And if he had that, he wasn't missing out on anything. John came to believe this truth and lived this out by telling others about this truth so that they wouldn't miss the most important truth ever. The truth about Jesus Christ. And I love how John ends his book in verse 25. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. It's almost like he's saying, forgive me, I might have left a few things out. I can't possibly cover it all. But he's doing more than that. Because what he is saying is, how do you write the biography of the eternal God who is all-powerful, present at creation, came and died to save us, and is returning to come back for us. How do you write it all down? The world's not big enough. There's not enough pens and paper, and there would never be enough books. He's saying, don't miss how big Jesus is. He can't be contained in a few words. And from this, we need to learn, we are never done learning about Jesus. We're never done applying what we learn about Jesus. We're never done being changed by Jesus in our lives. I fear, I grew up in the church, and I'm so grateful, so grateful for that. The things that God saved me from that I didn't have to go through, didn't have to experience because of my family and my upbringing. But I think, being brought up in the church, there is one unique perspective that I want to challenge you with. It's so easy as Christians who have been in the church, been in the faith for a while, to begin to check out and just coast. I don't care how much scripture you know. God has more to show you about who he is and who Jesus is. Until we get to heaven, and even then, Jesus isn't done working on us. In heaven, he'll have eternity to continue to show us new things. God's not done with you. Don't be done with Him. This is what we were created for. It's what we're saved for, to grow in this relationship with our Savior, to learn more about Him. And sin is constantly trying to pull our attention off Jesus to something else. Constantly. And without an everyday battle on our part and reliance on the Word of God and the Holy Spirit's work in our life, without fixing our eyes on Jesus, we will be tempted to think, I might be missing out on something. I better look over here for a little while. There might be something good over there. I know I've got Jesus, but I think I'm missing out on that over there. Don't do it. It's interesting that the disciple who said all the books in the world couldn't contain the truth about Jesus went on to write a few other books about Jesus. We know them as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the book of Revelation. 1st John in particular emphasizes that we must not love this world, but must love Jesus 
and love others. And then in the book of Revelation, John paints a picture of Jesus that is so powerful. In chapter 1, he sees Jesus walking among the lampstands representing the churches. And the picture is so powerful and so clear. Jesus is sovereign over the church. He knows what we go through. And He's right there with us. And He never gives up on us. And then in John chapter 5, verse 1, the image shifts to another scene, this throne room in heaven. And He sees God on the throne in all His glory and splendor. It's almost like John is stumbling over words to try to just describe the magnificent, holy splendor of God. But then in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, I saw in the right hand of him sitting on the throne, or who sat on the throne, a scroll. A scroll with writing on both sides. And in the context, the idea here is this is the will of God. How is God going to fix this? How is he carrying out everything to draw this to the appropriate conclusion? And a cry goes out in verse 2. Who is worthy? Who could possibly read that scroll? Think about that. Who can possibly communicate how a loving, gracious, merciful God is going to take care of the sin of this world with proper, righteous judgment and do away with sin and death? That equation in our human minds does not balance love, grace, mercy on one side with righteous judgment and doing away with sin on the other. Who can do this? I hope you know the answer. He says it in verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's, That's a messianic reference. The promised Messiah. He's the one. The great king, he's the one. This is Jesus, in case you don't know that. He has triumphed and he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And why? Why is he the one qualified? Because John turns and he looks and this is what he sees. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Love? Grace and mercy. Seeing us in our sinful condition, knowing we cannot fix ourselves. And so He goes to the cross for us. Righteousness, justice in dealing with sin. He takes it on Himself and dies in our place, providing salvation for all who will believe. Who is able? Jesus. Don't miss this. It is the most important truth we can ever possibly be confronted with. Jesus. John ends his final book with a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. People living in perfect presence of God. No more crying. No more sin. No more sickness. No more people killing other people or hating them. No more words from the doctor that we don't want to hear. No more watching a loved one go through hurt. And all of it is because of our Messiah King and Savior Lamb, Jesus Christ. Don't miss this. We're so connected to information in our world today. 
We can know what's going on around the world in a moment. We can know every tidbit of news, every different perspective. We can learn every deal on the internet, every event, every juicy bit of gossip. It's all there. And it's all constantly putting pressure on us. Don't miss out. Don't miss out. There's something better going on. You might be missing it. And I believe in our quest, our fear of missing out. Too often we're missing the most important thing. The truth about who Jesus is. Don't miss Jesus. If you're here today and... and You've never received Jesus as your Savior. Don't miss this. It is the single most important truth. It is the one thing in all of eternity that is truly worth saying, I don't want to miss out on that. Don't miss who Jesus is. You can accept Jesus as your Savior right now, today. Say, Jesus, I need you. I am a sinner. You died in my place. You are my Lord and Savior. It's not hard. And it will change your life forever. But for those that have been in the faith, receive Jesus at some point in your life. Don't miss who He is. Don't check out. Keep your focus on Him. Keep growing. Keep digging into the Word of God. There's always something more and wonderful to learn about Jesus Christ. Don't miss who He is. But also, as you walk around your world, your family, your homes, your jobs, your community, have the words ringing in your head, I don't want them to miss Jesus. And then you be the one, like John the Gospel writer, saying, hey, I've got something to tell you. I don't want you to miss this. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We are flooded with ideas and distractions in our world. And sure, the methodology, the technology changes. But this has been true throughout the course of human history. We invent new ways to take our eyes off of you. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone here that up to this moment has missed out on you in their life, may today be the day that they give their life to you, that they receive and accept what you did on that cross in their place, what you accomplished through rising from the dead, promising eternal life for all who believe. May today be the day that they say, I'm not missing out on Jesus anymore. And Father, for those that accepted Christ at some point in our life, but maybe you're going through a time of doubting or struggling or complacency. May these words rouse us back to focusing on who your son is. Don't miss this. And God, may we live with a beating heart of compassion for this world. And the single greatest way that we can love our world is by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people. There are other ways to show love, but this is the most important one, and we must not miss it. 
May we see our friends and our relatives and our neighbors through eyes of evangelism, with a burning heart, with a testimony that says, I want to share this with other people because I don't want them to miss out on Jesus. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the gospel of John in particular as we've looked at it. But most of all, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. In his wonderful, powerful name we pray. Amen.